0: Shabbat Shalom, Chag sameach, everyone. In his uh, multi-volume autobiography, if you haven't read it, once again, it's multi-volume, uh, you should. The late Elie Wiesel writes, of his time while in Manhattan, he crossed 7th, 7th Avenue at 45th Street and he was hit by a taxicab. The impact of the hit hurled him in the air all the way to 44th Street. And he lay on the road for 20 minutes until an ambulance came to take him to the hospital. Subsequently, his entire left side of his body had been shattered. There was a 10-hour operation that was required to reconstruct it, leaving him and a cast that went from his neck all the way down to his feet. All he could do was move his head. Friends came to visit him, one in particular, And he said to him, you know, Ellie, you're lucky. It could have been worse. You could have lost your sight. You could have lost your legs. You could have lost your mind. And he goes on to say, you know, it could have been worse. You could have lost your job. You could have lost your house. You could have lost your money. And his friend kept saying it could have been worse. And finally, Ellie says to him, how could it have been worse? And his friend says, well, it could have happened to me. Now, I usually avoid politics, and I think for good reason. From my experience, speaking about politics from the pulpit is usually a zero-sum game. Now, I know there are those who do like to hear politics from the pulpit. In fact, they get discouraged when sermons are, well, sermons. In other words, thoughts that reflect ideas on religion, faith, and life. I've heard that such things have nothing to do with our lives today, so why talk about them? On the other hand, there are those who eschew politics from the pulpits, saying that rabbis, priests, and ministers should have little to say about it. After all, they hear it all week long being harangued from the radio and the TV. Why in the world would they come to a shul or to a church or a mosque to hear it? So like I said, it's a zero-sum game. No one's going to be happy all the time. But here's what I've discovered. When Jews flooded to the shores of North America 125 years ago, they turned to the rabbis of their communities to explain how to be Canadians and Americans. They turned to the rabbis to understand what were the best schools? What were the best jobs? What were the best places to raise a family? Who should they vote for? Where's the best place to get a loan or a mortgage from? In other words, rabbis were translators. They translated America and Canada to these newly arrived Jews. But more than a century later, Jews need no help in understanding how to be Americans or Canadians, either ourselves or our children. You probably know better than me what are the better schools to send your kids to, what jobs are in demand, where's the best place to get a mortgage or a loan. No, today's rabbis need to translate Judaism to people who need its help in knowing what Judaism is saying to them, how to best live this moment, how Judaism can enrich their lives. But there are moments where the two of these things meet. And I think that may have just happened. A week and a half ago, the American president contracted COVID-19 which was paradoxically surprising and unsurprising all at the same time. Surprising because with the weight of the American government's impressive wealth and technology, you would have thought that this man would be in a bubble of rapid testing to protect him. It was unsurprising because eschewing all the conventional protocols regarding gatherings and masks, you would have thought it was only a matter of time before he got infected. And so we did. Within less than 24 hours, of public notice of his diagnosis, complaining of fever and fatigue and shortness of breath. Donald Trump was airlifted from the South Lawn of the White House and went to a hospital for care. And that is when, as a rabbi, things for me got interesting. The interest that wasn't born out of treatment options or criticisms of transparency, honesty, recklessness for the sake of political expediency no, the interest that I had was summed up in this one question. Were you happy to see Donald Trump sick? Now, I realize that a non-negotiable talking point is for us to say that we wish him a speedy recovery. But I wonder that for all the people who are saying it, and make no mistake, I heard it said lots of times, I couldn't help but wonder how many of them actually meant it. Now if you believe the writer of The Sound of Music, you would think that the things that make humans happy are rolling hills music and warm strudel. But for those who study human behavior, we know that that is only a partial picture at best. As Ambrose Bierce, the writer, once noted that happiness is the feeling arising from seeing the misery of other people. And don't think that there are some people who understand this very clearly about us. After all, one of the longest-running shows in television history, America's Funniest Home Videos, has been running for over 25 years on the premise that you will never get tired of seeing people fall off of bicycles, fall into pools, or crash into dinner tables. And you know what? They're right. You haven't gotten tired of it. So when you heard that Donald Trump was infected, was there a voice inside of you that sounded happy? If there was, you certainly weren't alone. On October 2nd, the day after he was infected and made public, the Google search traffic for schadenfreude or the gloating over the misery of another person increased by 30,000%. 30,000%. And then I started wondering, what's wrong with us? Now, you know, the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer said that taking pleasure from the suffering of another human being is the very worst of human traits. And that's because Schopenhauer saw that the thing that binds all humans together, irrespective of our faith, our gender, our wealth, or our race, is that we all suffer. In other words, it is our common suffering that makes us human. And if you dismiss the suffering of another human, well, that makes you less human. So fall down the stairs, slip on some ice, or walk into a glass door, and you're now a member of the club, which is one way to look at it for sure. But there's also this way. When people visit Berlin, one of the must-see places is the bunker where Hitler died by suicide. In actuality, there's really nothing there. All the buildings on top of it were destroyed and the bunker itself was raised and buried. Today it is an apartment parking lot, two blocks from Germany's Holocaust Museum. There's a sign there telling you that you're standing on it in between some large trees on a beautiful tract of grass. Behind you on the other side is a large strip of restaurants on your left side is the massive mall of Berlin. And yet each and every time I go there, I am overwhelmed by a feeling of justice. That this monster of a man did not die a quiet death. That he was not laid to rest in a grave. That in those days and hours before his suicide, of the desperation and panic that must have gripped his mind. And thinking of that suffering makes me feel that sometimes, even if so rarely, the world finds some balance in giving some what they deserve. And the pleasure that I feel in that, the pleasure is comfort. But perhaps there is something else for us to learn in seeing others suffer, which is very close to us this morning. Now we know now that what Schopenhauer said about the cruelty of taking joys from another person's suffering. And we know now about the feeling of justice that can come from seeing the right people suffer their due. But as for me, I think suffering shows us another lesson. It's a lesson that is heard in the words of the Tehillim, the Psalms, the words that the ancient rabbis chose amongst the millions of other words in our Bible to frame the moment of Yizkor. And <speaking> kechatzir <in Hebrew> that human are days like that of the grass that we bloom as a flower in the field kiruach avrabo that when a wind passes by and it is no more its own place and no longer knows it it seems to me that seeing others suffer reminds us of our frailness True, seeing it in other people sometimes may bring laughter or joy, but deep down inside, it's also a reflection of fear. The 19th century Rabbi Meir Visser, known as the Malbim, says that indeed we come and grow like the plants of the field, but while they grow back next season, once we pass, we don't. There will only be one of you who will ever live, only one of your son or your daughter, of your mother or your father, of your spouse or sibling or friend that you loved and now mourn, that others will come in our place, but unlike the grass or the flower of the field, that they will neither sound nor look or live the way that you or I do, to see weakness in others, to see others suffer, more than seeing justice or commonality, is to see our own weakness, and that is frightening. So I'll confess this. When the news broke of Donald Trump's infection, I felt the joy of justice. It was schadenfreude in total. Here, a man who flaunted every prescription by his own government to contain the virus, the wanton disregard for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in the pursuit of economic recovery for the sake of an election, The distinguishing callousness of seeing deaths in blue or red states offended me, and it still does. But then, I heard a report that he had asked to be taken to the hospital on that Friday, that he had trouble sleeping, that he had been struggling to breathe, and he was in the grip of an acute panic attack he feared for his life, and at that moment, I felt the same in myself. I felt my own mortality, my own frailty. In the wake of that emotion, you can do one of two things. There are two responses in your hand. The poor choice was Donald Trump's. After leaving the hospital, he was busy telling people not to be afraid, to go live their lives, that it's not a big deal at all, that they'll be fine. Of course, the people who will never have the kind of medical care that he was blessed with but more to be blind to life's gossamer threading. But Yitzchrist shows us the better choice. The better choice is to see that fear as a worthy emotion, one to be treasured, because it reminds us how precious the lives of those people we love are. In seeking the wisdom to measure our days, we need to be reminded that they are never infinite. Shabbat Shalom and Chag sameach.